Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are stronger than God. You are powerful. You are good. We thank you for your Son, who is the Good Shepherd. May we not reject him, but follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if we were to rewind the clock back to the year, let's say, 2010, and we were to look at the, say, top five or even eight Christian conferences, we would see a consistent list of pastors that would be popping up at a lot of those conferences to speak. I'm not going to read off the list of those names now, but back then, um, those names that were frequented at those conferences were a kind of who's who of pastors at the time. Thousands upon thousands of people listened to their sermons online, they paid to hear them at conferences, they bought their books. Thousands upon thousands uh, donned their halls to come to their churches to enjoy their services. Many of them, myself included, were helped by them. Some found Christ because of the books that they wrote and the ministries that they had. Many of them were uh, respected and had great admiration for them, only to have some of those same pastors, some of those same pastors to be listed now in 2019 as a who's who of failed pastors. Some of those pastors fleeced their congregations for money. Others committed immoral acts with women or children. Still others lied to their churches. Other pastors were hypocritical with their public presence versus their private presence. Some were domineering. Some were angry. Some uh, led by intimidation. And as a result, amid much scandal and disappointment, many of those are no longer in pastoral ministry. Then there are those pastors who are still in the pastorate, and yet to quote Ephesians chapter 4, they are blown about by every wind of doctrine. In an effort to remain relevant, to grow their congregations, or because their biblical convictions have weakened over time, they have bent their knee to the cultural messages. And then there are the pastors that are just plain lazy. They do the minimum, they won't respond to their people's needs, and the list goes on and on and on. I've done enough membership interviews in the life of this church to know that many of you have been hurt by these pastors. It's been hard for you, as a result of that, to even trust me, trust the leadership of this church. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what has been done to you in times past. You square all of that with a culture that increasingly has no taste for authority, uh, and for that matter, historic Christianity in general, and what you're left with is a kind of dearth of healthy, faithful, trustworthy, loving pastors that on the one hand won't bend the knee to the culture, but on the other hand won't bend the knee to biblical legalism, which is more allegiance to tradition than they are to scripture. And so what do you do? What do all of you do in an environment like that? Those of you that want to follow Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, and you want to be part of the vessel by which he is preeminently using for his glory, the church, what do you do? toxic environment like that. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is this is not a new issue. I have leaders that existed since the dawn of time. But the good news is God's doing something about it. He's doing something about it. That's exactly what we're going to see in Zechariah chapter 11. If you haven't turned there, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there now. I've entitled this sermon Rejecting the Good Shepherd. And here we will see God's sweeping condemnation for the poor leadership of his people. But also, it's important to note, we will find that there's room for a condemnation of people that like those bad leaders, as is evidenced by their rejecting the good ones. 
So the big idea for the sermon this morning, if you get lost in the sermon, just come back to this idea. Bad leaders take life, good leaders give life. Follow the good shepherd. It's a big idea. So this passage, let me go ahead and tell you, if you think Zechariah is hard enough as it is, Zechariah 11 for me has been the hardest one to figure out so far. Uh, I love the first two past first two uh, commentaries I opened up on Zechariah, literally first lines out. This many commentators say this is the hardest book to understand. Great, right out of the gate. Then I pick up the second one, true story. Second one, many people say this is the hardest book to understand. And so this passage was really challenging for me to try to understand. And so I'm going to ask a lot of you. I'm going to ask a lot out of you in the next about 20, 25 minutes. Because here I'm going to do sort of four movements in this sermon. I'm going to kind of plow right through the passage, help us understand what's going on. Secondly, the kind of second movement in the sermon is I'll kind of sum up what it said. Third movement is I'll show you how it's fulfilled, and then the fourth movement will be our application. All right, so stay with me. This is a tough passage to understand. We're just going to plow right on, right on in. So I told you to open up to Zechariah 11. Look over there at Zechariah 9.1. That sets the context for our passage. It's going to tell you most of what you need. To know. So there's a word, it seems to say there, 9 1, a word that is from the Lord against all mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. See that there? And last week we learned about how the Lord was going to judge the nations that had placed their hope in earthly powers, in silver and gold and ramparts and their own pride, uh, those kinds of things. God was going to bring judgment to them. And then there was going to be this king that was going to come in on a donkey. This was going to do the very opposite. Because he was coming on a donkey, that was messaging that he's not coming in on a war horse. In other words, he's not coming in like earthly powers. He's coming in humble, mounted on a donkey. He was going to conquer the world through humility, not by setting his hope on earthly powers. And God was going to judge the nations, but then we still were waiting largely for that, uh, also for the judgment on the tribes of Israel. That's what that's what that's what uh, Zechariah 11 is doing. Now we get some information about his judgment on Israel. That leads us. Zechariah 11, verses 1 to 3. Where it says, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. So uh, what we have here is he's using poetry in these few verses. Uh, the word of the Lord points to earthly powers that Israel's shepherds have been trusting in. So uh, we find there the Lebanon cedars. They're well-known cedars. Famous for those cedars that were used to build the temple. The oaks of Bashan, the thicket of the Jordan River. In other words, what God's saying here is those trees will be felled. Those hopes will be felled. The thicket will be ruined so as to expose them to the lions. All the earthly powers, in other words, that they have been trusting in for their glory, they're all coming down. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, in this surreal depiction, these symbols of glory crash, charred and smoking to the forest floor. They're personified whales piercing the sound of the rushing flames. This vivid picture creates the, the feeling that the vaunted objects of human pride are collapsing. And this hypothetical destruction stirs emotion. You can hear and even see that emotion. You can sort of see it and hear it if you listen closely enough to it in verse 3. That wailing of the shepherds because their glory is ruined. Shepherds of Israel because their glory is ruined. And that sets the tone for the rest of the passage. Israel's shepherds, pastors, leaders, their glory is going to get chopped down and they're going to wail. That 
leads us to verse 4 to 5. Thus said the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them, and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. So Zechariah is meant to depict a kind of shepherd of the flock that is doomed to the slaughter. He's sort of like an actor that puts on the clothes and the persona of one of these shepherds from Israel. We see here, we look at uh, Zechariah, and from him we learn about those bad shepherds, what they're like. Namely, we see in this passage that they buy sheep from the flock and they slaughter them, and they do that, and it goes unpunished. And remember, guys, the notion of sheep here is meant to uh, communicate God's people. Sheep represent God's people. So they're buying and selling God's people, and it's going unpunished. And then they sell sheep and say, praise the Lord. Couldn't help but think about Frederick Douglass' biography that where they were selling slave babies to fund missionaries. We see shepherds that have no pity on God's people. So basically the shepherds or leaders of God's people are buying and selling God's people for the sake of their own gain. They care nothing for the sheep. They care nothing for God's people. As a result, they care nothing for God. And we also see in Ezekiel 34 a promise, a prophecy, before all of this happens, where God speaks to those same shepherds, those same leaders. In Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 4, it says this. This is Ezekiel prophesying. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And then we get this transition to the sheep themselves in the passage. Lest we think this is all the shepherd's fault, we find in verses 6 to 8 that the sheep themselves are in trouble. They're not desiring the right thing. Look at verses 6 to 8. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. And one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So what we see happening here is the shepherds have no pity on the people, and the Lord says he won't either. Because the Lord, and because the Lord won't have uh, pity on these people, on the sheep, verse 6, he will cause these sheep to fall into the hands of each other and their king. And remember, that would be understood to be a bad thing because the kings were bad. We'll get a little bit more insight as to why or what's going on here. But keep, stay, sit tight with me for a moment. Look over to verse 7. We get the continuation of verse 4 from Zechariah that's depicting the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. And he, Zechariah, takes symbolic sheep staffs one named Favor, the other named Union. That's going to make sense in just a moment. But then we see him, he's tending the sheep, and Zechariah is meant to indicate a good shepherd. We'll see that right here in verse 8. Zechariah is acting the part of a shepherd that is shepherding the flock, as is evidenced by his destroying three bad shepherds in a month. 
In other words, Zechariah, those three bad shepherds, those three shepherds he takes down in the month, that's meant to illustrate he's taken down the bad, he's trying to protect the flock of the bad guys, and trying to protect the sheep. And yet, as a result, look what happens. Zechariah, meant to illustrate the good shepherd, that takes down the bad shepherd, he becomes impatient with the flock that he's trying to care for because, it says there, they detested him. So the sheep didn't like the fact that he was the good. The sheep didn't like the fact that the good shepherd was getting rid of the bad one. And they didn't like it. They didn't like the good shepherd. And so this makes more sense as to why the Lord wasn't going to pity the sheep of Israel any longer. Because as we have seen since the day the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt to this day that Zechariah was speaking, when the Lord had restored them from the exile, the people simply constantly despise or detest the good shepherd that tries to minister them in the world. They seem more comfortable with the bad shepherds that buy and sell them than they do the good shepherd that is trying to get rid of the bad shepherds that are leading them in lines. And as a result, we get more commentary there on verse 6, there in verses 9 to 11. Look what happens. Verse 9. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But basically, in this vision, the Lord is saying through Zechariah that he is done with trying to shepherd Israel. He's breaking the staff of favor towards them, which then leads to more death and destruction. The Lord was not going to be there to love, to shepherd them in the truth. Instead, he was breaking or he was annulling his covenant with them. His favor is removed, and what is left is the people are eating and devouring each other. Now, this is meant to picture, uh, this is a picture of a people uh, that, that has had the Lord's hand on them, and then he removes them. Remove them. Now, this is referencing ethnic, the ethnic state and the ethnic people of Israel in the Old Covenant. This is not true of us in the New Covenant. God does not break it for us. But what's happening here is God's breaking that staff, saying, you can sort of have your way. Off you go. You see what happens in verse 9 when that happens. The Lord's hand of blessing, his covenant of hand of protection, that comes off. Look what happens. People just start devouring each other, and off they go. And again, this is referencing ethnic Israel, but the reality is, folks, when we read Romans 1, we see the same thing happening. God just, instead of coming on and loving us and protecting us, he's, by his passive judgment, some would say, he just lets people have what they want, and it gets them. That's the picture here. You can see that when his rod and staff are removed, his love and blessing is removed, his word is removed, things just get chaotic, they don't get better. It's a great picture for what's going on around the world today. Well, this, he annulled, he's annulled the covenant he has with Israel. Chaos ensues. These sheep traders, those bad leaders, they know this is happening. You can see that there in verse 
uh, 11, they knew this was the word of the Lord, that this good shepherd was doing the right thing, and yet they still rejected. That leads to verse 12. I'll read verse 12 again and come on down to verse 14. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. This is the good shepherd talking, Zechariah talking. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price in which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Okay, here's what's going on. Zechariah, continuing to act the part of the good shepherd of the flock, he's rejected. He says to the bad leaders, all right, give me, if you want to give me anything at all, tell me what you think I'm worth. If you guys want me out, I'll go out. If I've earned anything, you tell me what you think I'm worth. And they say, sure, we'll give you some cash for your work here, 30 pieces of silver. And we know from Exodus 21, verse 32, that is the value of a slave. That's what these bad leaders of Israel are saying the good shepherds were. They're about the equivalent of a slave to us. This is meant to indicate that the good shepherd of the flock is not worth more than a slave. And remember, they know this is the word of the Lord, verse 11, and yet they still say he's only worth a slave. The Lord then tells Zechariah as the symbolic, uh, as the symbolic good shepherd to go and throw those 30 pieces of silver to the potter in the house of the Lord. That would have been the temple. Take that 30 pieces, throw it in the, uh, the silver they give you, throw it in the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, the potter's job was to form and fashion things for the temple. Remember, they're rebuilding the temple. And so the meaning seems to be that the paltry wage these bad leaders thought the good shepherd of the flock was worth, that wage was thrown to the place that these leaders had neglected. Namely, it was a symbol of their neglect of God. Because the temple was meant to reflect the presence of God. Throw the wage there. So therefore, the pennies that they gave the good shepherd, they were only able to make a few little tiny pebbles to build up the temple. The bad leaders knew the word of the Lord. They neglected the good shepherd who was building up the temple in favor of lining their own pockets to build up their own lives, their own houses, their own comfort. That leads to the symbolic breaking of that second staff, union, where the Lord finishes off what he began in that first staff, in the breaking of the first staff. And so he completely annuls the union that he had with Judah and with Israel. In other words, the divorce is complete. But then there's one more vision. Verse 15 and 16. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their words. So once again, Zechariah is given the role of acting the part of a shepherd, only this time he's acting the part of a foolish shepherd. One of the bad guys, as it were, kind of depicting that. This foolish shepherd is meant to illustrate what God will do in the future, raising up a shepherd or shepherds, that will, you can see it there, they will not care for those being destroyed, not seek the young, not heal the maimed, not nourish the healthy, but instead devours the flesh of the fat ones. In other words, the Lord is going to raise up a shepherd or shepherds in the land in Israel that is in Israel that will be like those bad leaders that Israel seems to enjoy. 
a bunch of leaders. God's going to raise up a bunch of leaders that won't give life, but instead will just keep taking it, which will cause chaos and destruction to live all. And then we get a final sweeping judgment on all of these shepherds, including the one or ones that's going to raise up in verse 17. Final sort of sweeping judgment for all of them. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserves the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blind. So the language of the swords against arm and eye, they seem to be striking at the kind of devices a shepherd would need to care for sheep. His eyes to see the bad guys, to see the problems, and his arm to get in there and help. He's judging that. Woe to those shepherds. Woe to them. They desert the flock. They care nothing for the flock. They care nothing for God. And they evidently only care for themselves. They only care for their own glory. All right. Plow through. Let me sort of summarize it for us. Try to bring it together. Kind of gone through the parts. The Lord is saying to all of Israel, but with a special emphasis on its leaders, Judgment is on you because, it's coming to you because you care only for yourselves, you care nothing for me, so I'm walking away from this covenant. As a result, you'll be struck with even worse leaders that will lead you to even worse destruction as you guys just devour each other because you don't have bad leaders to help you love each other. And again, the reason is because of their love for their own glory because they detest or care nothing for the glory of God and the good of his people. Therefore, you get what you ask for. That's what God's saying here. You get, the, you get what you ask for. You get the bad leaders, and you get all the bad stuff that comes with it. You get leaders and societies that take life instead of getting leaders that are trying to give life. That's the suffering. Big idea of that. Let's move to the fulfillment. So one of the most difficult parts of interpreting passages like this, apocalyptic literature, especially when you get apocalyptic poetic literature in the Old Testament, it's really hard to do. Is the difficulty is trying to find out when are these things going to happen, if they haven't happened already. And this task gets so much easier, praise the Lord, when New Testament authors tell you what they mean. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Alright. So this passage, Zechariah 11, is directly referenced by Jesus' disciple Matthew in Matthew 27. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 27. If you want to know where that is, if you're not familiar with your Bible, just turn to the right a few pages. Matthew 27. I told you I was going to ask a lot out of you guys. These are difficult things to understand. We have the kids with us this morning. They're going, my goodness, Mom, Dad, what does this stuff mean? And you, y'all are saying that to them. I'm not real sure. I'm trying to figure it out myself. So hopefully all this will kind of come together. So again, we're looking now at the fulfillment. At the fulfillment of all these things that Zechariah was illustrating. Alright? And remember, go back to last week. Remember Matthew 21. For those of you here, Matthew 21 quoted Zechariah 9.9. That a donkey, that the king was going to come on a donkey. And remember, Jesus Christ comes in on Palm Sunday, and that happens exactly as Zechariah said it would. He comes in on a donkey. Everybody's going to Hosanna. Behold, your king has come. There he is. That goes from Matthew 21. That kind of sets off the series of events that leads to the crucifixion. And Matthew 27 is the kind of final events that gets us right to the doorstep of the cross. So Matthew 21 quotes uh, Zechariah 9, now Matthew 27, quoting the kind of end of it right before the cross. Okay, you with me? All right. Fulfilling his promise. 
We know that Zechariah is pointing to Jesus in some way. The question is, how does Zechariah 11 point to him? Well, if Matthew's citation of Zechariah 9.9 was the beginning, again, verse chapter 27 is the quotation of 11. This is documented time. Take a look at chapter 27, verse 3. This is the quotation or the documentation of Judas handing Jesus over. Judas is one of Jesus' disciples, and he's handing Jesus over to the Basli. Here we go, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Stop. Don't keep reading. Stop. Look at it. Come back to verse 9. I'm going to throw you off. I want you to pay attention. Watch me. So make sense of this. Notice here, guys. Notice we have all the same things happening here in Matthew 27, 3 to 9. All the same things happening as they are in Zechariah 11. So you've got bad shepherds of Israel here, represented by the chief priests and the elders. You also have 30 silver pieces referenced here. While it is given to Judas, remember, this is the value that those bad shepherds think Jesus is worth. So kind of push Judas out of the picture for a moment. This is what they think he's worth. Then you have those same 30 pieces of silver. We would expect them from Zechariah 11 to go where? Be thrown where? Into the temple. It's exactly what happens in Matthew 27. There's only one missing piece, right? What do we need? We need a potter to come into the store. And that's exactly what they do. They use that blood money in Matthew 27 when Judas hands over Jesus to buy the potter's field. Boom! And that field, the potter's field, is a place of destruction, of death. Close of the loop of the fulfillment of this passage, Zechariah 11. Close of the loop. Find their fulfillment in the bad shepherds, the bad leaders, handing over Christ to be crucified. And all of this is made clear in the fulfillment in the next two verses. Now look at verse 9. Then was fulfilled, so he understands the fulfillment, what had been spoken by the prophet Zechariah. All y'all looking at. Yeah. Pay attention to the text. Bring your Bibles. It's not what it says. I would be a bad shepherd. You should walk away. Right? Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave him for the potter's field as the Lord directed now, why does it say? In other words, all that that just said, where this fulfills what was said back in the prophets. Now, why you're thinking? Why does it say Jeremiah? Why does it say Zechariah? Well, maybe the, maybe the author, you know, instead of putting a you know a Z, he put a J. I don't know. Maybe I doubt that's true. As a matter of fact, I'm quite confident that's not true. But the reality is, friends, what is going on here? I'm not going to have you go there. Write this down. Go read this later. If you were to turn back this afternoon to Jeremiah 19. 1 to 19, 1 to 19, sorry, 1 to 9, you would see all the same things happen. 
Jeremiah 19 wants and on all the same elements of Zechariah. You've got a potter, you've got the neglect of the temple, most importantly, you've got the prolonged failures of Israel's leaders combined with a promise of judgment upon them. Same thing. So the reason why Matthew says this fulfills Jeremiah and not Zechariah is because, friends, it was common practice for New Testament authors to quote the major prophets when additional prophecies were said. You see this exact same thing happening in Mark chapter 1, where it says that uh, fulfilling the prophecy of uh, Isaiah, and it quotes Isaiah and also Malachi. Same thing happening here. You know, the four minor prophets, they get shorter ministries and shorter books, and the big guys, they just get all the credit. <laughs> they just put one name in. That's what's going on. Because I don't want you to lose sight of the evidence of the transcendence amidst our Guys, do you realize that Zechariah was written some 500 years before Christ shows up? You realize that Jeremiah was written some 600 years before Jesus shows up? And with amazing specificity, all of those promises are complete. Every single one of them. That a good shepherd would be rejected by the bad shepherds of Israel for the wage of 30 pieces of silver, which made their way to the temple and for a potter. Friends, this passage points us to the rejection of the good shepherd that would lay his life down for the sheep. The world, those bad leaders, those who don't know and love Christ, they, they're, they, they're not saying he's not worth nothing. They say he's not worth much because they're more interested in their own glory. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. That's exactly what happens today. People are unwilling to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And as a result, there is that image of favor and union with those people broken. Both Israel and anyone that is not in Christ. It's broken for them. It's broken for you if you don't know and love and trust Christ. There's no covenant with you. There's no marriage with you. But the covenants of union and favor, they maintain for anyone that trusts the Good Shepherd that loves him, that lives for him, that submits to him, that trusts him for all of the forgiveness of their sin. Jesus, the good shepherd, goes, yes, to indict Israel and bring judgment to Israel, but also to atone for the sins that do love him and do trust him. And we, those that are in Christ, we are the true Israel that did not bow the knee to the bad leaders. We get to know, love, and trust in the Father of Christ. So first application point. Don't reject the good shepherd. Don't reject the good shepherd. That is to say, don't reject Christ as Lord and King of your life. The bad shepherds wanted to preserve their own glory and they rejected for 30 paltry pieces of silver. That's all Jesus was worth to them. And the sheep, likewise, they detest his dismissal of the bad leaders. That is, they didn't like the leadership of Jesus Christ any more than the bad leaders that were taking advantage of them. Now listen, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I wouldn't make that trade. I know better than that. I'd follow Jesus. I wouldn't follow those bad shepherds that were taking advantage of me. But friends, don't be so confident. History shows us that the masses are constantly duped by false leaders. 
Don't think yourself better than the Jews of old that gave up Christ in your testimony. Don't think yourself better. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth. Guys, those kinds of warnings are all over the New Testament. In fact, one could say that the preeminent concern of New Testament authors was the allure of riches and the destructiveness and deceptiveness of false teachers given by false shepherds, false pastors. Don't reject Jesus as Lord and Shepherd of your life. And before you think that you haven't, friend, make sure that the Jesus you claim to be your Lord, your Shepherd, your Good Shepherd, before you claim that's the one you believe in, make sure that Jesus that you say you love is the same Jesus that is revealed to us in the Bible. Make sure they match. Which means you're going to have to study, listen, pray, read the Word. Because it's possible, friend, the good shepherd you say you follow isn't the same Jesus in the Bible. It's possible, like verse 8, you detest Jesus, the good shepherd of your life, in favor of a constructed Jesus that's not real. There are all kinds of Jesuses that have been constructed by false leaders that people follow unwittingly. I'll give you an example of a few. There's co-pilot Jesus. I know that co-pilot Jesus. Co-pilot Jesus loves to sort of help you get wherever it is you want to go. Co-pilot Jesus' favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you to care for plans to prosper you, give you a good place. Then there's red state, red state Jesus. This Jesus mainly cares about the conservative values and the preservation of America as a world power. Patriotism all the time. Red State Jesus' favorite verse is 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, I will heal their land. And oftentimes that has against the backdrop of it an American flag, so the land is meant to be America. That's wrong. It's not true. It's written to Israel. Don't follow Red State Jesus. And don't follow Blue State Jesus. Blue State Jesus dislikes organized religion, thinks we all need to just tone down the doctrine and just welcome all. Blue State Jesus' favorite verse is, Judge not lest you be not judged. And there's Baskin Robbins Jesus. 31 flavors. You pick and choose which parts you like about Jesus, and you live by those, or just ignore the rest of them. Baskin Robbins Jesus' favorite verse is, God is love. Love is love is love. We just need love. Am I ever defining what that means? And then, of course, how can you forget? Touchdown Jesus. Okay. Touchdown Jesus exists to get you glory. You know what that verse is. I can do all things through Christ who Philippians 4, written on every athlete's finish. Jesus exists to get me touchdown, me glory. And then, friends, there's King Jesus. True Jesus. The risen and reigning Jesus. The one that has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one that says a lot of stuff that is uncomfortable. The one that says a lot of things that we don't like to hear. The one that calls us to actions and lifestyles that are hard. The one that challenges us, that pushes us not to be a better person, but to be a new person. That submits the whole of their life to him. 
as is evidenced by their serving him and serving others in his name. Inconveniencing ourselves that he would get the glory and that other people would be flourishing. Which Jesus are you following? Don't reject the truth. Make sure you're not moved in following the wrong one. It's possible, friend, that you detest the true Jesus in favor, in favor of a Jesus that is of your own making. Follow the real Jesus. The one that is revealed to us not by the New York Times or by Fox News. The one that is revealed to us in the Bible. The one that loves us enough to confront the bad shepherds and lead us into the still waters of the New Jerusalem. Oftentimes through difficult and trying ways. May we all repent. All of us repent of our idols and our own glory seeking. And trust the great shepherd king, Christ the Lord, as Lord and masters of our lives. May none of us reject him as the leaders of old in order to pursue our own glory. May, may none of us give him just a few pieces of our own silver when the basket goes by. But instead, may we lay down all that we may follow him. And for those that are unwilling to do that, for those that are unwilling to reject further to reject the bad leaders and to follow the good shepherd. This passage clearly teaches, second point of application, justice is coming to bad leaders and those that follow those leaders. That's the clear teaching of this passage. Justice is coming to those bad leaders and those that follow those leaders. You can see that clearly in the woe to the worthless shepherds that desert the flock in verse 17. You can see that clearly in verse 4 that references shepherds that are doomed to slaughter. And in reference to the sheep that followed him, you can see evidence for them in verses 6 and 9, where the Lord hands those sheep over to what had already died. Again, this is referencing Israel, friends, but the same ideas continue today. The question is, how can you tell what a shepherd is, a bad shepherd is? How do you know which one it is? This leads us back to the introduction. How can you be sure? What kinds of lenses can you make sure that you're not, so as to make sure that you're not following the bad guys? How can you make sure I'm not the wrong guy you should be listening to? How do you know? Well, I think this passage gives us four things we can evaluate in order to see if we're following bad leaders, bad shepherds. Slide back to chapter, go back to Zechariah. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. So remember, this is continuing on from 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 10, verse 2. Look at it. For the household gods utter nonsense and the diviner see lies. They, sell, they tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. The Lord of hosts cares for his flock. So the first thing you can do to evaluate good leaders or bad leaders is to determine what their doctrine is. Are they teaching wrong doctrine, false doctrine, bad doctrine? You can see that. Look at verse 2. Do they utter nonsense? Calling people to follow household gods. Do they tell false dreams? Give empty consolation? It has been said in our days that doctrine divides. You darn right it does. It led Jesus to the cross, his doctrine. Everybody has a doctrine. Everybody in this room has a doctrine. The question is, is it the right doctrine or the wrong doctrine? Do you have good doctrine or bad doctrine? 
And so, friends, you should be suspicious of those people that don't want to define their doctrine. Or those that want to be comfortable with just sort of mere doctrine. Look, God gave us a really big Bible. We should understand all of what it's saying, not just a few things that it's saying. You should have the kinds of leaders that open up all of these things to you and help you understand what they're saying. In Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul commands Timothy to teach what accords with sound doctrine. In Acts 20, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that he didn't shrink from teaching anything that was profitable. He even goes on to say as, uh, as to the fact that he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And of course, Jesus commanded us to make disciples that learn to obey all that he commanded. Not just some, not just pieces. And so check a pastor or a leader's doctrine against not just pet doctrines, not just things that make you feel good, but against the whole counsel of God. You know you found a good pastor, a good leader, when they tell you stuff you don't want to hear. If it's faithful to the word. This is the authority, not this guy. And it is because leaders teach falsely, misrepresent, misrepresenting God as a result of what will happen. James chapter 3 verse 1, it says they will be judged more strictly. Because they taught this wrongly. Look for leaders that teach true doctrine. And run from those that don't. Second way you can evaluate is prayerfully evaluate if a leader is seeking to get some glory from you. You can see that clearly in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. The leaders wail because the Lord is felling the things that serve their own glory. The false shepherd used the sheep to feed their wealth in verse 5. And this, of course, is exactly what we see in the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders of the New Testament. They want Jesus out of the way because he's stealing their glory. He's stealing their profit. He's stealing their status. So evaluate a, a leader to see whether or not they're using your time, your money, your presence in order to build their glory and not the Lord's glory in your good. For those that do that, the Lord says that they will be doomed to slaughter. Third way you can evaluate false teachers, false pastors, false shepherds is to see if they have any direct abuse. Just look again at chapter 11. These leaders are buying and selling the sheep of God's people and having them slaughtered in some way. And then some of those leaders are saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Their hypocrisy here is devastating. As a result of this, physically, I'm sure, hurting God's people. So stay away from pastors, leaders, that are trying to physically hurt, abuse people. Save their repentance, the Lord will judge them severely for harming them. Fourth way, you can evaluate if a leader is uh, a good leader or a bad leader. Determine whether or not they are passive among God's people. You can see that there in verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherds who deserve the flock. So does the leader seek to be among the sheep? Do they seek the welfare of God's people? Or do they revel in being a shepherd but lead God's people to the vices, to the devices of a harmful world? Good leaders try and be among their people. They should smell like a sheep. They should not be at home sleeping counting sheep. Right? John chapter 10, Jesus says, the great shepherd, he says that the higher hand, when trouble comes, they peace out. 
good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He's willing to be sacrificed so that nothing harmful is believed or lived out or harm comes to them. The good shepherd gets in there. That's what Jesus does. And his under-shepherd should be the same way. They should be among their people. They should not desert their people. The Lord says, woe to those that are passive. He will bring judgment to them. And so, Restoration Church, you should know, this is why we have set up the elders and deacons of our church as we have. The way we have. We want to be near to you. We want you to be near to us. Because as leaders of the church, we understand it to be our responsibility to love you, to pray for you, to teach you, to counsel you towards Christ and towards one another. We think that's our job. In particular, the pastors, we have the name pastor because we are shepherds. That's our job, to shepherd people, not just to shepherd programs and individuals or buildings. Shepherd people. People, that's our job, to bring you into the good, into the life-giving, to warn you, to call you away the things that are going to hurt you. Now, let me be clear about that. When we talk about pastors being close, we ain't interested in getting all up in your business, all right? Like there are things in which I don't need to know the details of your life, right? But our desire is to love you and shepherd you towards the truth. We are interested and believe ourselves appointed of God to shepherd you within the truth. And likewise, we want to make ourselves available to you so that, as, so that you can, as you as Paul told Timothy, to evaluate our life and doctrine. So I intentionally stand in that auditorium after services so you can come and talk to me. Ask me questions. Get to know them. Our pastors, you'll see them all out there. Joey, Nick, Chris, we have four. You can find them out there. You can talk to them. Get to know them. Make sure they're not bad guys. I, I, I'm in a community group every single week. And I have guys, you can ask the guys in there. You can ask Curtis. You can ask Travis. You can ask these guys. I have to remind them. Do I not, Thomas? I have to remind them. You have to ask me questions. I can fool you. I know all the right answers. You have to ask me if I looked at stuff I shouldn't have looked at last week. You have to. Am I right? Can I get an amen from one of these brothers? Amen. There we go. <laughs> My wife and I have people over for meals as time on the schedule will last. And I think it may be helpful for you to know that our elders even shepherd each other. So we have to, just as one example, we have to ask, we have to answer one somewhat. All the elders have to ask a series of questions in relation to any change of ethics, any change of doctrine, any change of stuff that regards sexual or, immor or financial immorality. Uh, if we're doing something we ought not do to manage our own household well, all of us have to answer direct questions. And then at the end of answering those questions, we have to ask, answer the question, did you just lie to me? And I understand that won't fix it all. It's just another device to make sure that we're loving and encouraging each other. Trying to place ourselves in your proximity so that you can make sure you're following the kinds of shepherds that God wants, not these kinds of shepherds. And I realize that all 125 members of our church cannot equally know me and me know you, like us, Joey, or Nick or Chris. I get that. But that's why we have deacons in particular. That's one of the most important parts of their ministry. So that they can do the kinds of stuff that y'all don't think about so that we can be freed up to preach, to pray, to love you, and to encourage you. That's why they exist. One of the reasons they exist. That's why we're always praying and training up new elders. We need more. Brothers, calls to you.
As this church grows, we need more of you to step in. Not just to believe the right stuff, but to love people. We'll come to that more in just a moment. But right now, we have four elders. As their church grows, we need more so that more of the shepherds can be close to the sheep to love them. Not to get up all in their business, but to just love and trust the shepherd and towards the truth. Our intention is to have every member of our church at least know one pastor. Why? If you're a Christian, why would you not want to know your pastor? And have your pastor know you? Oftentimes it's more than just one, but nevertheless, that's the goal. The leadership is not primarily interested in names of this church. Sorry. Wow. That's not what I meant. The leadership of this church is not primarily interested in numbers of this church. We are interested in names. Faces, struggles, stories. We're interested in not just how you're doing today, but how the kinds of decisions you're making for today will set you up for 30 years from now. We endeavor to care for you as under shepherds or representatives of the great shepherd. We are deeply flawed, folks. I am a deeply flawed man. We endeavor to have you know us. And the moment you hear, or the moment you hear false teaching from this pulpit, you see hypocrisy, you see stuff. You should one fire us, or leave, and or leave this church. You should start by protecting the gospel by firing. That's what you should do. It's serious. How many churches could have been protected had the members not done their job by getting rid of bad shepherds? And on behalf of all the elders, I want you to know four things that we commit to for you. Four things. We are committed to wedding our convictions to the word of God for the good of the church and the glory of God. We are not, are not, we do not have convictions that are more wedded to culture for the good of our own glory or the preferences of a few. We're not going to do that to you. We are committed, secondly, to being honest with you about ourselves. Third, we're committed to being honest with you about yourselves. Fourth, we are committed to being in your midst love you and pray for you. And rest assured we have, we will fail you, but by the grace of God we're trying to, we're trying to work against the judgment of these false shepherds to have you get to know the good shepherd, which leads to the final point of application. Fourth, this is the final application. Aspire to lead by loving God and his people. You, not just me, aspire to lead and love God and love his people well. So while I don't think there is an, well, I do think that there is an emphasis on the spiritual leadership of Israel, which I think most closely accords to pastoral leadership in the church today. The reality is this passage is teaching all kinds of leaders in the life of the church, not just pastors. I've already mentioned deacons, but there are also other biblical leadership positions. We've got husbands, leaders of their homes, parents, leaders of their children. Anybody that is opening up a Bible saying this is what is true, that's a leader. That's, you're being a leader in those moments. In the realms of the formality aspects of our church, that includes community group leaders. That includes Restoration Kids teachers, Titus 2 teachers, guys that preach at Friendship Terrace. And of course, what should, we, should be even more common for all of us is when we are getting together, as we prayed earlier, around tables and things of the like, taking walks, the organic, the organic rhythms of our church. In those moments, you are shepherding. Make sure that you're shepherding in the truth. The point is, in some way, shape, or form, if you are in Christ, all of us fall under this call to not be a false shepherd in addition to the call of not being a false sheep. Therefore, brothers and sisters, aspire to lead others by loving them in the truth. 
Don't be satisfied with just consuming the truth. Do something with it. Shepherd other people in it. Don't be satisfied by just taking it. Press it into others. Long to press it into others so that more and more people might know the joy of the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Galatians 6, one exhorts all of us. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Members, we have covenanted together. Our covenant says we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church. We've covenanted that we will responsibly steward our spiritual gifts for the service of this church and the community at large. In other words, look to not only be served, but to serve others in Christ and for Christ so that we don't wind up being one of these churches that fall into the condemnations like these. It's our job as pastors to equip you for the work of ministry, not to have us do it all. And I praise God for how many times that happens in the week of this service. If you are one of these people that are realizing that you're sort of taking a lot and not getting a lot, might I encourage you to aspire, to pray, to lead others in the truth. We need your help. We need you. In fact, God gave you gifts to help strengthen us so that we might be a shining light in Washington, D.C. for his glory and not our own. And may all of us then aspire to be those that give light to others and not take it. Pray for more faithful under-shepherds. Pray for, for godly husbands and moms and dads and things of the like. Be the kinds of husbands and parents and leaders that call out falseness and try to impart life to one another. Guys, this is the heart of our life together as a church. Maybe then, as Paul says, guard the good deposit that has been deposited to us. Guard it. Protect it. May we advance it to the four corners of the world, knowing that Christ, the good shepherd, will return and take us home. I'll end with this. Gone long enough. Last night, or this weekend, we had our elders retreat. And uh, we end, we always do the same thing. We, end with, we, have, we invite other uh, leaders in the life of the church to come there, male leaders to come. And we always do the same thing. We start the weekend on Friday night by reflecting on God's past grace, and we end the weekend by asking God, by, by evaluating the kinds of things that we're going to do as a church to trust God for grace in the coming year. We're back, first meal, last meal, looking forward. What are we going to trust God in the coming year? There was maybe 15 guys around the table last night. This is what made me cry. Uh, that thing went around two times. We asked the Lord what we're going to trust God for first time personally. And then we went around the second time. What are we going to trust God in the, in the life of our church? What are we going to trust Him to do in our church together in the coming year? Not a single guy, not one, said anything about a building. Not a one. Every single thing they said was something to do to be good shepherds. Men asked for more conversions. Another man asked that we would be careful to preserve our unity through what is going to be a toxic political cycle. Another man said, I want us to not just, our membership, to not just say they believe our statement beliefs, but they love the statement. Another man talked about the fact that how we've had so many people move and the Lord has filled up that table that we would get more than coming around that table. I could go on and on. And I just broke. That's not normal. To have people whose heart is to love God and see people flourish. What 
So many people want, we think it's power, just we get a building and it all everything's great. No. People. We want to shepherd people. We want to do the right thing. We're going to screw it up. We already have. We'll do it again. We're trying to get it right. We're trying to follow Jesus, the good shepherd, humbly, faithfully, boldly. Come join us. All of you, men, women, children, join us as we try to push the light of the gospel in more through and beyond the end of the earth. And may he keep bad shepherds away from us. And may we treasure the great shepherd forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great shepherd and you laid your life down for the sheep. You stayed there when wolves came. You suffered for their for our good. God, keep us from bad leaders, bad pastors, bad shepherds, bad deacons, bad community leaders, bad husbands, all these things. And give us good ones. You've given us so many good ones in the decades. Give us even more in the coming years. More leaders, more moms, more women in leadership, more all these kinds of things. Give us more that the glory of the great shepherd would be shining all the more. Thank you for how you've done that. Do it all the more for the coming year, we pray in Jesus' name.